At this time, we'll turn our attention to the reading and preaching of God's word. Here today is Jenny Ding to read our passage from the book of Isaiah. Today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 5 to 8. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, wherever you are in your journey of life, whether you're Wherever you are in your journey of faith, we are glad that you are here. We usually have in our community people who are skeptical, interested, curious, committed, and everywhere in between, and we're glad that you are here. We are, this January, looking at a very short series on the call of the gospel for Christians, us also as a particular group of Christians, to be a people of justice and mercy. Last week we saw that we are called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Uh, Now the response to last week's sermon um, and some of the events uh, in Washington DC of this past week have revealed some of the depths of tensions and divisions that exist within our society and even within Christian circles. And and if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, uh, you may think Uh, You may be surprised to know that most Christians in Toronto, most Christians that I know of, don't take the same approach as those people who stormed the Capitol building, that most Christians that I know are much more sympathetic to the issues of injustice and privilege and truth and racism that are currently being discussed in our culture right now. And if you're a Christian, you already know this. You're aware of some of the divisions that are happening both in our culture but even within the church. Many pastors I talk to actually uh, think I'm a bit crazy to, to bring this up. They want to avoid this discussion altogether. The, the discussion itself raises emotions, sometimes catalyzes divisions. I, I felt a little bit of that, experienced that a little bit last week. I used a word, uh, and that word triggered people who assumed that I had embraced critical race theory uh, and other progressive ideas because I had used that word. Uh, even some staff wondered. Uh, and what I found most striking is nobody noticed the brand new vest that my wife had bought me for Christmas that I wore last week. Yeah, it's a new one this week too, so now you know. But I could tell we, we're into this discussion. It causes a lot of intensity. So let me rehash or repeat what I said last week. Whatever side you are on in the current cultural conversation and debate, I hate to tell you, God's not on your side, not totally. He might be on your side personally, but in this debate, God is on his own side. And he critiques both sides, all sides actually. And for people of the gospel, we should be on God's side and be willing to do that. Now, do I think both sides contain elements of truth? Absolutely, I do. But I want us to hear this. I want all of us to hear this clearly now. That neither movement right now, that are at cultural war, neither movement when they speak, And they say something true. 
Neither movement is saying something new. They're simply discovering what God has already known and already told us through his gospel 2,000 years ago. And they don't articulate the truths that the gospel articulates with near the power, the reality, and the transforming ability and the grace that the gospel does. The gospel alone, it seems to me, provides the way forward for us as a church when we talk about mercy and justice. So we should talk about it the way the gospel does. What I mean by that is when the gospel highlights personal responsibility, personal holiness, personal need to be personally involved, not just systems of oppression, when the gospel talks about personal responsibility, the gospel needs to be heard. But... If and when the gospel says that there are structures of oppression or wrong or injustice, then to there the gospel needs to be heard. And when the gospel says that we fail in both of these ways, we fail in terms of personal responsibility and we fail in terms of dealing with structures of injustice that we keep ignoring and downplaying, then we really, really need to hear the gospel. And that's, I think, what this passage does. These verses say all those things, and we'll see that. But they also look us straight in the eye. And these verses say, okay, hold it. Stop hiding behind your political and cultural debates for a moment. And get out there and start living sacrificially for needy other people. Stop using excuses to keep you from personal and costly involvement. Don't just talk about justice. We do that all the time. Do justice. Don't just like mercy. Love mercy enough to be involved in mercy. These verses say, understand what true fasting is. Understand what true Sabbath means to God. It means a Sabbath from selfishness. It means a Sabbath from comfortability. It means a Sabbath of costly sacrifice, of mercy and justice for the sake of those who need it. That's the Sabbath by God's Sabbath people that has the power to change the world. That's the Sabbath that Jesus came to bring. This passage makes that point in two different ways. It says, firstly, there's a centrality of gospel justice and mercy in the idea of honoring God in the life of God's people. Secondly, there's not just a centrality, there's a true power of gospel justice and mercy in the life of God's people. There's centrality, and then there's power. Now we pick up this passage in verse five, and you can tell already, if you've heard it, that we're in the middle of a passage. That it's contrasting a certain way of fasting from a way that God prefers. And so we'll we'll, we'll quickly look back at what lay before this passage to show you. Because this passage responds to a deeply flawed spirituality being practiced by the Jewish people at the time. These people were doubling down on religious practices. They were adding to weekly Sabbath observance here, fasting from food, to show the the reality and earnestness of their spirituality. And God's not responding well to it at all. As a matter of fact, they get frustrated. In verse 3, they say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Like, why aren't you listening? Why isn't our fasting giving us leverage to you? And God answers, verse 4, just before this, hey, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Do you hear that? 
What is God saying right before this? He's saying, your fasting is a kind of virtue signaling. Your hearts aren't really humbled. You're not really repenting of your own selfishness. You're fasting to show you're spiritual and to leverage me. But in reality, you're still oppressing your workers. You're still pursuing your own pleasure. You're still divided. What is that? Monday to Friday is unchanged by your weekend spiritual practices. It's virtue signaling. That's what he's saying. James chapter 4 makes the same point in the New Testament that Isaiah 58 was making. James 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions or, or desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have. And so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. And so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask in prayer. You do ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your desires. You hear that? James in the New Testament is saying what Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was born. Our prayers, our fasting, if they're for selfish reasons, they're virtue signaling, we're doing them to leverage something out of God. By the way, virtue signaling for leverage, that's, that's not just a religious thing. A few years ago, I was meeting with a, a C-suite of a major Canadian bank, and I asked them if their bank would be interested in donating money. Someone in our congregation needed a, an almost $20,000 special chair because they were disabled, and OHIP would not cover it. It was too new. And he dropped his head, and he said, I'm sorry, Dan. We're the big banks. We don't do charitable giving unless there's some public marketing and advertising leverage from it. Sorry, we don't do anonymous gifts like that. Do you hear him? Charitable giving is virtue signaling for leverage. It's not just in the church. It's been around for ever since humans have been around. But what God wants to say is virtue signaling, particularly religious virtue signaling, cuts no ice with God if it leaves your heart intact in your selfishness, your pride, and your comfort. God rejects it. Matter of fact, here there's a pause between verse 5 where God talks about the fast that he wants for a person to truly humble himself. Why will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? In the, in the, in the Hebrew grammar, there's, a, there's an intensifying language that says stop and think about what I've just said because I'm saying no. That's not the fast that I choose. Why? Because the verses that follow tell us it doesn't have justice or mercy in it. So then he says, mercy and justice are central to a true fast. Because I want you to fast from your selfishness. And this not eating is not doing that. Now listen to the costly nature of true fasting. The costly nature of gospel spirituality. It has always got justice and mercy at the center. He says, verse 6, Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? You hear that? Loosen the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Break every yoke. I was, I was talking this Tuesday uh, with a bunch of the um, pastoral staff and Howard McPhee was talking about this verse. He says, Dan, I'm sorry, you cannot get around this. Uh, I don't care what your political orientation, this talks about structures of wickedness. And one of the best commentaries on Isaiah by Alec Machir puts it this way. To loose the chains of injustice, 
the fetters of wickedness, points to the need to labor for the abolition of every way in which wrong social structures or wrongdoers in society destroy or diminish the due liberty of others. To untie the cords of the yoke refers to the need to eliminate every way in which people are treated like animals. The oppressed are those broken by life. It's not enough to work for amelioration. We must work to break the bonds and secure positive values that have been lost. So, to those of us who are skewing more progressive, and we think these ideas of structural oppression have have just been discovered by new theories, critical theories, whatever, I need to tell you these words are 2,700 years old. To those of us who skew conservative and were afraid of this structural uh, interpretation because we think it might be something new that's just come out of a progressive movement, I need to tell you these are gospel words from 2,700 years ago. The gospel has always recognized that gospel justice includes dealing with structures of injustice. Now, has the church always followed them? No. Has the secular society always followed them? No. That doesn't mean they're true. And in fact, this says that the gospel has always had central to its message this part of justice and mercy. These words clearly call God's people into the world of helping to break yokes of oppression, fetters of bondage. And by the way, this tends to be long-term work. It includes advocacy, getting involved in policy discussions, possibly protesting. It also means having the church as a church enter into places of structural brokenness to help. That's why our church has felt called to respond to some of the structural brokenness of refugee camps by by bringing refugees in. And I thank all of the lay people who who both initiated this and have helped make this happen. That's why we do things like Tabitha House because there's, there's structures of homelessness that are happening and we want to get some of these homeless off the streets. These are acts of justice and mercy that we do because we believe we're called to do that. But I remember when I was a young Christian and I met a lawyer who was a Christian and um, he, he said he'd spent his life working for indigenous rights. That, that was his whole life. That was his practice. He'd moved his practice into that, even though it didn't make him near the money his old practice had. And I said, why did you do that? He said, well, this is my mission field. This is my work. This is what I'm called to do, to break the injustice. And I went, oh, okay. I, I thought it was more about personally sharing Jesus with people. He says, well, don't stop doing that. But don't think it's just that. It's this too. Breaking structures is clearly in Isaiah 58, but so is personal involvement. Look, look at the next verse. It says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now, now in these particular verses, the, the Hebrew grammar here used by Isaiah uses a technique called fronting. It puts the person who's being helped at the front. For emphasis, the writer puts the object first. So in English, it would sound something like, the hungry you will share your bread with, the homeless poor you will bring into your home. The grammar is screaming at us almost. It is shouting at us, these people, they're not statistics. They're not them. They're us. In in fact, when it says, not to hide yourself from your own flesh, 
Commentators say that that word can be used as either family or all of humanity. Probably means all of humanity, but it might be a double entendre deliberately trying to tell you your family is other human beings. They're made in the image of God. They're not just them. They're not a number. They're not a statistic. They're not just someone you walk by. They have names. They have families. They have stories. Remove the layers of insulation between you and people in need. I, ha- I struggle with this. This sermon's for me. And I, and I do need to contextualize because I know there's probably already four questions in here about the very thing I'm going to bring up. So hear me now. I'm not suggesting that in our present context, if you're, uh, say you're a single woman, you're living alone in, in an apartment or a condominium, that you should take someone who's homeless into your apartment. In the original context, home often had multiple generations living with them. Multiple adult males for some protection in case someone was predatory. The homeless population was also a different crowd than our present one. And even the word home in this context, scholars tell us it really could be a metaphor for the larger social network, mostly familial, but more than that, that you live and breathe. But with that contextualization made, let the point keep its force. We're called to remove the layers of insulation that we have created between our personal involvement with the needs of people who are hungry, homeless, naked, and broken. This is why, by the way, at Grace Toronto, we've consistently tried to be involved with mercy and justice projects that are holistic and involve personal interaction between us as congregants, the people of our church, and those who are in need. That's why almost all of our partnerships with Grace Center and Mercy and Justice include that personal interaction where we get to minister to inner city kids like with squads, Toronto City Mission, our advocacy clinic work, which works with people from around here who come into our building and need help. Almost all the Mercy and Justice initiatives have had this personal involvement. The refugee sponsorship, the same. Tab of the House, one of our newest initiatives, same thing personal involvement, central, and a big part of the initiative. But we're not called to just be happy that our church does it. You and I, the gospel calls you and I personally into this kind of engagement. So it may take a change of mindset for you because it will cost you time, energy, convenience, comfort, money, emotional energy to try and help people move from need to flourishing. To break the yoke isn't just to feed them while they're chained, but to break the chain and help them to freedom. Conclusion. Gospel justice and gospel mercy are central to the whole idea of true spirituality. They are essential and central. You cannot have a true fast with God if you're not willing to move from selfish comfort and abiding by and even letting happen oppression towards selfless action for the sake of those who need it. That's the centrality. Now, there's also the purpose of gospel of justice. As, as Jenny read, she read this part of 8, 9, 10, 11, where he talks about the results. And the results tell you the purpose. This is why God wants us to do this. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall bring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. 
You will call and the Lord will answer. Do you hear the personal communion of God with his people? You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, repetition, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light, second time he's used that metaphor, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. Twice he said light. Now the second time he's going to say God's presence. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. He will make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And summary, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You as the people of God will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Here are extravagant promises that God gives us as what will happen if the church actually embraces the true fast from selfishness to selfless gospel justice and gospel mercy. Firstly, the church will be a light to the world. Secondly, the Lord will be present, will guide them, will answer their prayers, will say, here I am, and will, they will become like a watered garden in his presence, feeding people water that quenches their thirst. Do you hear that? These all add up to an incredibly beautiful picture, but, but, but it's not. <laughs> it shocked me when I read this. It's not the picture of justice defeating injustice. That's kind of what I thought he would say. That's not what's promised. God's not saying that in your lifetime all injustice will end, that wickedness will be banished forever. Why? Isn't that the logical place to go if we do this? Because it's a picture of the people of God being the light of God to a dark place. It's the picture of the people of God with God helping them being a watering place for people who are thirsty. It's, it's not a picture primarily of political, economic, or social liberation, although it's in there. It's a picture finally of profound spiritual liberation. Because the purpose of gospel justice and gospel mercy is not just to combat earthly injustice and heal earthly brokenness. Gospel justice wages war on injustice, to be sure. Gospel mercy really brings practical healing and hope to people. But the ultimate war that gospel justice engages in and the ultimate healing gospel mercy brings is deeper because three chapters after writing this, Isaiah will promise in Isaiah 61 that a day is coming when all that justice he's calling for in Isaiah 58 and all that mercy he's calling for will happen. He predicts a future day. Here it is, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. Justice, mercy, freedom, that's coming. Well, 700 years after Isaiah was written, a Jewish rabbi will walk into a synagogue in northern Israel, sit down, open the scroll of Isaiah to that passage in Isaiah 61, read it out, close it and say, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus Christ came and brought in the kind of justice that Isaiah 58 cries out for and the kind of justice Isaiah 61 promised. Jesus did it 
by fasting the fast the Lord God calls his people to do. You see, Jesus didn't just fast from injustice. He was perfect justice incarnate. Jesus didn't just stop doing wickedness or protest against it. Jesus broke the power of evil itself at the deepest level. Not, not by becoming a culture warrior, not by becoming a social justice warrior. He did go to war all right, but he went to war against something far deeper. He fasted all right, but against something far more insidious. You see, Jesus fasted against all selfishness, against all sin, all moral wrong. And by doing that, he was the light that revealed to us how addicted we are to our own selfishness, how enslaved we are to our own comfort and our own greed, how our own deep drives for recognition, fame, and influence master us We who oppress as humans are ourselves spiritually oppressed. We are all spiritually yoked by something deep inside of us. The gospel calls it our sin nature, and it is a taskmaster. Jesus said anyone who commits sin, that's all of us, is a slave of sin. We are all slaves to the deepest kind of slavery, oppressed by the deepest kind. We have the deepest yoke in our own spiritual DNA. And when Jesus came... He fasted against that. He never submitted to it. He fasted from all selfishness and poured out all love. Every day he was tempted, as we are, to choose himself over others, sin over love, selfishness over selflessness. And every hour, every day, he was tempted. And every hour, every moment, every day, he fought that temptation. He fasted from it. And he won. And then he, the sinless one, with no moral guilt, went to the cross And he took the guilt of our sin, the guilt he had never submitted to or fallen into, the wrong of selfishness that he had totally fasted from, but we had not. He took our guilt and our corruption upon himself. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 to 28. As it is, is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for humans to die once, and after that comes judgment, we will face ultimate justice. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul, a religious virtue-signaling Pharisee who finally met Jesus and realized all of his righteousness was trying to leverage himself with God would say this in Romans 6, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God through Jesus. That's why Jesus came. The purpose of Jesus to break the bonds of injustice The purpose of Jesus is to heal the wounds of sin and oppression in you. But it's your injustice that he's breaking the bonds of. It's your own sin and your own guilt. You see, the purpose of the gospel goes so deep. It comes to you at your deepest level and says, let me free you from the bondage of sin and the addiction to self that causes, that catalyzes, 
that creates all these dynamics of injustice and wrong and oppression that Isaiah 58 is railing against. Do you do wrong in your thoughts, in your desires, if you're like me all the time? Do you ever become indifferent to the suffering around you? Do you ever become so focused on your career, your happiness, that you have blind spots to the suffering of others? Welcome to my world and everyone else's. Every day, probably every hour, we do this. We sit in our home offices, we read our news, we comment on social media, we get disgusted by events in another nation's capital, and then spend how much time actually praying about and caring about and getting involved or doing anything about the suffering and the needs of others? If you're like me, not nearly what you should. Why? Because we're people. We're self-absorbed. We're self-interested. We're self-focused. We need a deeper freedom. We need a Sabbath from the selfishness that wants to reign in our souls, from the sin that so easily entangles us. Jesus will give us that. He will set us free from the bondage of corruption in our hearts. He will come again one day, it says. He will establish all justice. He will establish all mercy. But he will judge wickedness. He will judge and do away with oppression. A day of perfect justice is coming. But if that day is coming and you don't know Jesus, then no one has paid for the injustice that's in your heart. No one has paid for the selfishness that still reigns in you. So come to Jesus. Do you want to live a life of gospel mercy and gospel justice? If you haven't yet come to Jesus, come to him in faith and say, I have to admit there is an oppressor in me. There's injustice that I think about and long to do, even if I don't admit it, in me. There's moral selfishness that rules in me, and I need to account for it, and I need to own it, and I need forgiveness from it. And I ask you to apply your death on the cross to my sin. I know you died. I ask now that your death would be applied to me. If you're a Christian and you've already done that, then you have the Spirit of Christ who gives you the power to overcome our addiction to selfishness and comfort and set us free to move into gospel justice and gospel mercy, both in helping structurally if we're called to, but also in helping personally as we're called to. So pray for the Spirit to open your eyes to see. Pray for God to give you a heart that truly cares and plan to use your time, your energy, your money to heal, to loosen, to feed, to house. If you're in a small group, get together with your small group. Talk about how can we begin to pray for for one area of need that we know about. And then how can we begin to plan to help that one area of need? How can we be personally involved? Help us too as a church to be better at what we're called to do. Tap of the house was an idea that came from you. Refugee sponsorship came from you. We need you to continue to flavor us, to season us, to strengthen us with what God's calling us as a church to do. Gospel justice and mercy is central. Gospel justice and mercy is powerful. Let us be people who fast from our selfishness And become a people who are a light 
to a broken world who give the water of the gospel and bear witness to the overriding power of freedom that comes from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. Help us to be people of mercy and grace. Help us to be people that take seriously the call to justice and to break loose the bonds and the structures. We thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. And help ask that your spirit would just give us, unleash in us not only a freedom, but wisdom in how to do it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I have some questions. Uh, I'll answer a few of them briefly if I can. Oh, uh, thank you for, this is a very long, uh, examples to demonstrate gospel living our day to day. I find it challenging to reach out when COVID seems to ask us to withdraw and isolate. Absolutely, I get that. This context is really difficult. Um, Considering how to address social justice within a Christian paradigm requires thoughtful reflection and discussion. Yes, it does. There's been too much unthoughtful reflection, so thank you for that. Um, and thank you for the other words of encouragement. Uh, okay, good morning. Well, good morning to you. Uh, nice vest. Okay, I, I earned that one. I deserve that one. Okay, why do we see such a disconnect between Christian living and justice and mercy? How can Christians make justice and mercy a lifestyle rather than a niche of interest? This is what we're trying to do. I've been talking with Rosemary um, Friesen, our interim director of uh, Grace Center for Mercy and Justice. This is what we want, a lifestyle. It starts with opening your eyes and your heart to see. Walk around, prayer walk your neighborhood, look and see. I prayer walk my neighborhood and, I, and all of a sudden I notice, wait a minute, there's one of those uh, check cashing places. What's it doing here? I, I thought we were kind of, you know, wait a minute. You know, they, they take a big chunk of your check and what they do is they, they, they pray a little bit on people who don't have bank accounts because of the circumstances of their life. And so as I began to pray, I began to notice there are more of those people in my neighborhood than I ever realized. And so I began to pray about them. And so when I'm walking around, I'm looking for them. So I think pray and ask God and then get together with others and pray and ask God. Uh, let's make it a lifestyle. Let's really try and do that. Great question. Um, what does one do if social justice has become an idol for them? I come from a social justice background, and after becoming a Christian, I feel strange. I come from the opposite. So uh, this, is, this is great. I, I come from the opposite background. I came from a very doctrinal, uh, uh, you know, the, the Christian world is all about witnessing and, and teaching properly and very little to do with social justice. And so I have much sympathy for you. Uh, if, if you come from a social justice background, what you're going to tend to do is think systematically and, and systemically all the time because that's the way the, the present cultural narrative is being sustained. It, it downplays personal responsibility and it downplays the role of justice to be impartial and sees much more of a restributive and systemic fixing of oppression as what justice really means. Well, those things are there. They've been there for 2,700 years. But as you fill in the gospel in your own understanding, Especially if you read the Old Testament, you'll see how robust it is. It's both structural and personal and impartial. It's all of those things. And so let yourself be rounded out. Do good reading on it. Uh, I'll try and get a reading list at another time. So that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, okay, uh, one or two more. Uh, 
Okay, man, you guys are long. Uh, thank you. Your intro was helpful. If I understand you, there's truth to both sides of the spectrum, and, and none offers the complete solution. That's a fairly good dis- depiction, yes. Are there any other resources, books, blog, oh, podcasts, etc., that helps us explore these things to talk about in detail? Um, there are tons. I'm not much of a podcast or, or blog guy because I have so much reading I have to do for my own, uh, my own for you. Uh, but one podcast that my wife pointed out is called United, question mark, we pray. And it's talking about healing some of the racial divisions in North America from a gospel perspective and a social justice gospel perspective. It seems to be quite biblical and sound and gospel centered. So United, question mark, we pray on Spotify. That's one I can give you. Um, I'm beginning to read a book by Carl Ellis from a, a black American Christian leader's perspective that I think will be helpful. Um, uh, his name is Carl Ellis. So, uh, but let me read it first before I can recommend it to you. There you go. Uh, why doesn't God free us quicker from our selfishness? I don't know. I'm going to ask him. Uh, matter of fact, you're going to get in the line behind me when, when, when we ask that question. That's, that's a great question. Uh, last one I'm going to do. Uh, is one of the purpose of today's sermon to encourage us to fast and how properly to do it? Uh, all, so does grace call for corporate fasting. Um, no, now, that wasn't the purpose of the sermon, but glad you brought it up. Fasting is not something that God uh, hates. Matter of fact, God calls people to fast. Uh, but it needs to be a true fast from the heart. And so what God ca- ca- caught them doing was doing the action without the uh, proper motivation. They were still selfish and leveraging in what they were doing. And so uh, we are called to fast. As a matter of fact, we've done some corporate fasting before. It's been a long time, uh, and it's good. I'll think about bringing it back. Thank you. That was a great thought. Uh, I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to move to our time of reflection. And if there are any more questions that come up, what four more have come up, uh, I will answer them personally. But let me pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. And now as we respond to you, I pray that we would respond well, uh, that we would not make excuses for our indifference, but we would own it and we would see it as part of the deeper bondage to our own selfishness and we would ask for true freedom from the true bondage of our own sin nature. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.